Let's turn in God's word to Paul's epistle to the Colossians in the New Testament. We are involved in an ongoing study, verse by verse, of God's word as it is found in this wonderful little epistle in the New Testament, the epistle of Paul to the Colossians. One of the key words in Paul's letter to the Colossians is the term to fill. He wants them, the believers at Colossae, for example, to be, quote, filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. We saw that already in verse 9 of chapter 1 in our previous studies. When we come to verse 19 in today's study, we discover that, quote, it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness, there's that word again, for all the fullness to dwell in Him, in Christ. In chapter 2, the theme of fullness in Christ continues where we read in chapter 2 and verse 9 that, quote, In Him, that is again in Christ, all the fullness of deity, that is the Godhead, dwells in bodily form. This fullness found only in the perfections of Christ. And for us, extraordinarily, that fullness that is in Christ becomes the source or the fountainhead of you, if you will, of our own fulfillment. The fullness that is in Christ becomes for the believer his or her own, what Paul calls, completeness. Today we'd say, In Christ, I have found true fulfillment. Now, listen again how the Apostle states this same truth in that second chapter. We'll be coming to it maybe weeks from now. When you read verses 9 and 10 in the second chapter as as an equation, that is, this and that put together equals something. Listen to it in that fashion, if you will, verses 9 and 10 of chapter 2. First part of the equation, verse 9. For in Him, that is Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And now here's the rest of it, or the equals, verse 10. And in Him, you have been made complete. You see, Paul will passionately protest that anything less than the fullness of Christ will accomplish or will rather not produce a complete Christian. That phrase, the complete Christian, is the banner we've set up over all of these studies in this epistle. The opposite is true, or conversely, anything that we try to add to Christ as a source of our spiritual life and living, is in Paul's mind, and of course he's thinking God's truth, a fraudulent and corrupting heresy which obstructs the Christian's pursuit of completeness. 
or fulfillment. We, we could simply put it this way. One of the Latin phrases of the great Reformation ages ago was the important truth to underscore that it is Christ alone or solus Christus, Christ alone. Take anything away from that or add anything to what he has already done and you have something far less than the complete Christian, which is our goal in these studies. It's in this very letter that Paul warns with these words. Listen, let no one keep defrauding you. That's why I said any other doctrine than this is fraudulent. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by, among other things, taking his stand on visions he claims he got from some direct communication with God. Such false prophets, he says, are inflated without cause by their fleshly, non-spiritual minds. I think when we studied uh, that uh, particular uh, warning in a little detail in one of our former messages, I said, be careful of voices that you hear, whether they come out over the television or at some meeting you may be where someone is speaking and they lay claim to having some secret that only they know that you need to usually purchase or be understanding of if you're going to experience this fullness in Christ. Paul says that's a dead giveaway and someone's trying to defraud you of your true spiritual heritage, your prize, which is Christ himself. Now, in Paul's day, uh, that prevalent heretical teaching or philosophy was called Gnosticism. Gnosticism was the heresy of that day. And that's not an easy philosophy or belief system uh, to try to define in our day, uh, at least for us preachers. I wouldn't try to define it uh, without running the risk of putting some into a deeper sleep than they are already perhaps enjoying at this moment. I wouldn't want to do that. But let me uh, address some of the problems that Paul is addressing in first century Colossae in our own contemporary uh, realm in where we struggle today, I believe, where we struggle for the truth of Christ alone as our sufficiency. In our time, right now in these days, this is not unlike Gnosticism of first century. There are, I think, two terms which come close to what Paul battled in his day. Let me give you the first term. There is a great deal today of what we call syncretism. Syncretism. You hear the ism in the word. Syncretism infecting the thinking, or in our day, the lack of thinking, among many professing Christians. It's sort of like a smorgasbord of all kinds of religious ideas out there, popularized notions, and often recognized as passing fads, which infect whole churches, where secular students of the culture tell us I mean, imagine the world having to tell us this. Secular students of the culture tell us undeniably that we are living now in days that are very spiritual in nature. Spiritualism predominates our even scientific age in which we live. But much of that spiritualism which is little more than a blending or a syncretism of a wide range of all kinds of belief, has nothing to do so often with Bible teaching or truth or any notion of truth itself. In fact, 
those who would practice this approach to their own faith or their spiritual uh, pursuits uh, really are allergic to truth because the very nature is they want to be able to believe whatever comes down the road and make it part of their own system. Whereas if you begin to declare biblical truth, you automatically find them shutting down because, of course, it disrupts their what they would call their spiritual journey, uh, so-called. Now, you even might find the name of Jesus mixed in here and there in some people's spiritual journey. But really, if you listen closely, he is little more than just another trinket in a large bag of spiritualized junk. Syncretism. The blending of all kinds of beliefs without regard to anything that the living God has actually revealed in his word to be truth indeed. And then, in my opinion, there is in the so-called evangelical church today, that is a big group that says they believe in the Bible, an epidemic of another philosophy or belief, and that is called pragmatism. The philosophical idea that whatever works must, in fact, be the truth, at least the truth to be followed. This is most evident, I think, in the plethora of well-meaning churches that are ever seeking after and developing methods whereby they can fill up the pews so that they can, I guess, add more pews and fill those up with yet more people so the church gets big. Pragmatism says whatever it takes and whatever seems to work If the goal is to have a big church and see no wood, as I see looking around here in these empty pews, uh, then let's do whatever fills up the church, whatever works. And, of course, the problem with that is God is little concerned, he tells us in his word, with outward appearance, that that is what men look at, and they will do whatever works to get that done if that's their goal. But the Bible tells us that God is looking upon the heart. And we understand in his word that he is still seeking those who must worship him in spirit and in truth. In our day, uh, I hear more than I want to hear about seekers. And what we need to do to have those who are seekers fill up these pews and make us a bigger church. But it's interesting when you open God's word, who do you find the only seeker to be but that of God himself? It's God who is seeking. God is seeking those who will worship him in spirit and on the ground and basis of truth. Now, how is one to counteract such corruption, cultural corruption of the church or corruption of the biblical doctrine and practice? Uh, that we uh, make part of our experience today. How are the minds of true believers to be secured? Paul says elsewhere, how are we to take captive our thinking unto the obedience of Christ? Well, here is the wonderful discovery we find right in Colossians. It's in Paul's methodology. The apostolic method of Paul, listen carefully, this is refreshing, I think, is less a critique of error than a position statement of the sufficiency 
and the supremacy of the person and work of Christ. Now, I need to repeat that because I'm not sure you get that first time around. I'm not sure I did either when I wrote it. The apostolic method of Paul is not to spend volumes of writing cursing the darkness, critiquing the Gnostics so much, but as you read this brief letter, what you do find is in the light of those isms, whether it is Gnosticism, syncretism, uh, or pragmatism, Paul would rather lift up Christ. Demonstrate the sufficiency, he's all I need, and the supremacy, the fact that he is Lord, of the person and work of Christ. Sufficiency and supremacy of the person of Christ is what we proclaim in answer to those who perhaps have wandered off on another course to make things work. Surely we will find in the letter a rebuke of false notions of spirituality. It's there. But rather, again, than spend his time cursing the darkness, he lifts up the glory, the beauty, the fullness of Christ. And what does that do? It leaves all of his competitors in the dust of failed human philosophies and wisdom so-called. Paul knows that nothing can compete with the incomparable Christ of creation and redemption. In fact, if Paul were among us today, he might counsel us to repeat often the Apostles' Creed. Or, I doubt that, he'd probably say, just read and reread and read again my letters, he'd say, to the first century churches. Because really, there is nothing new under the sun. Christ was all the first century believers needed. Christ is all 21st century believers need as well. In Colossians, the apostle, in effect, is following his own counsel that he once gave to his young protege, young pastor Timothy. Here's what he wrote to a young pastor in that first century. And uh, I take it as a letter written to me in this 21st century. Here's what he said. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom. Here's the instruction. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Then he says, for the time will come when they Less of a congregation and more of an audience is what he's talking about. The time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. Isn't that interesting? I'm going to look for a church and I'm going to find a pastor who will say the things I really want to hear. Forget that business of reproving and rebuking and exhorting and correcting. Just tell me what I want to hear. The most popular preachers today 
are preachers who fashion every sermon to leave people feeling good. Their books are on the top selling list. But he says, you, you, pastor, you, preacher Timothy, you be sober in all things. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist, which is to preach the gospel, yes, and preach it to Christians. Fulfill your ministry. And I say to you folks, this job description has not been changed. It hasn't needed updating in 2,000 years. Preach the Word. When you preach the Word, you are preaching the supremacy, the sufficiency of Christ. The apostle will preach Christ and the meaning of his cross. Christ and him crucified. Now, our assigned text today is chapter 1 at verse 15. The subject, as it always must be, then, is Jesus, the incomparable Christ. What a few verses of praise for Christ is found here. So follow then as I read for us verses 15 through 20. Chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. He, that is Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth. Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him, and get this, for him. Verse 17, he is before all things and in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church. And he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. I still like the way the King James uh, renders that, that in all things Christ may have the preeminence, first place in everything. Verse 19, for it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. And through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. A very brief but important prayer. O Father, open our eyes, Lord. We want to see Jesus. Amen. Down through the ages of time, the question continues to be asked, even by those who wish they could ignore the question altogether. That irrepressible nagging of the soul to know, who am I and why am I here? You know, my wife Diane and I were about to share a meal in a wonderful restaurant with a dear friend, uh, not too long ago. We had been given the menus as we were seated a while. But as you've sometimes done, probably, we really hadn't taken the time to read the menus 
since we were so caught up in our conversation with one another. And when the waiter approached, he said, thinking that we had read the menu, can I answer any questions for you? Our friend looked directly into his eyes and said to the waiter, what is the meaning of life? (laughs) Now, we chuckled at that, and the waiter remarked that he thought we should have asked what the winning numbers of the lottery would be. As though money and lots of it might somehow be related to the meaning of life question. I know, leave it to your pastor to take a moment of banter and make it a serious theological issue. The Gnostics of Paul's day and the mystics of ours are still asking that meaning of life question. And the Apostle Paul is saying, along with all of the scriptures, that one cannot begin to know the meaning of life apart from the revealed nature of Christ. The first question is not, who am I? Even before you can begin to get an answer, you must be asking the question, who is Jesus Christ? No one can ever really get in touch with who they are apart from answering that question, who is Jesus? For if it is true, as Paul writes, quote, that the fullness of the Godhead dwells in the bodily form of Christ, which Scripture declares, and if it be equally true that we are made in His image, how can one know themselves apart from the doctrine of the deity of Christ? a doctrine that most church-going people really aren't all that much interested in hearing about, and yet a doctrine that literally fills the pages of our New Testament. Here at verse 15 is the Apostle Paul's creedal statement. This is an Apostle's Creed that begins with his teaching on the supremacy of Christ. Verse 15, He, Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. We want to look at that. God is a spirit, and as such, might never have been fully known to us apart from the incarnation of Christ, the second person of the invisible God. Paul says he is the image of the invisible God. That word image there, by the way, folks, is the Greek term Icon. Something more in that word than a mere painting, an imprint, or even some representation of God. It means, for example, much more than the likeness of Caesar on a Roman coin. Do you remember when they asked whether or not they should pay taxes? And Jesus said, Do you have a coin? And And he said to his disciples, whose image is on that coin? And it was that of Caesar's. And Jesus said, well, then render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Sometimes the word icon has been taken to describe that, but it's not the word that Jesus used in that case. Though Paul is using this word here because 
it is something very different. I think I have a quarter. I don't have much more than that. I am, after all, a preacher. I have a quarter, and, and on it is the image of which president is on the quarter? George Washington, that's right. There he is. Now, it's one thing for me to say, there is the image of George Washington there. It would be quite something different. In fact, it would be something quite mystical, would it not, if I said that some part of that image of George actually has some of George's actual spirit in it. But in the ancient use of the term icon, that's exactly what the Apostle Paul is saying. It tells us that Jesus is, in fact, real God in flesh. The astounding fact of all the ages. It's why one of his names is Emmanuel, meaning God actually with us. And as man not unlike us, yet without sin. A number of you may have heard of the... uh, ludicrous Jesus seminar. It's made up of a very mixed bag of about 150 theologians, so-called, from around the world. And what they do for us is they get together twice a year to drink coffee and to uh, decide for us and the rest of the world whether, first of all, there really was a Jesus. Not that he was divine, of course. And then uh, they take apart uh, the Bible to find and determine for the rest of us what words in the Bible, if there was a Jesus, should be actually credited to him as words he actually spoke. And if he did speak them, they will tell us what he meant by those words, not necessarily what the words actually say. I have fairly, I think, described the ongoing work of the prestigious Jesus Seminar. Uh, The participants in that seminar, again, discuss these things hours on end until they put it to a vote. All these theologians decide truth, you might like to know, by dropping a bead in a covered box. There are four colors of beads. They will discuss an issue or maybe a verse of Scripture, and they will determine whether or not this is something to be believed, and they will determine it by either putting a red or a pink, or a gray, or a black bead in the box, indicating by those colors the degrees of their judgment. So if at the end of the session there are more pink beads than there are black ones, they can safely say that perhaps now, with their great minds, they have arrived at some truth for the rest of us. Now, I can tell you that if the apostle were invited to such a group, he would throw the beads in the waste bin of human conjecture and simply declare the same words we find here in our text today. He'd stand up in the middle of them, and all he'd have to say is this. Christ is the image, the icon of the invisible God, the firstborn of creation. Statement of faith. This is creed. This is doctrine. And by the way, by firstborn of creation, he does not mean that Christ 
somehow came into existence as part of the creation. Some of the more notable cults, like the one across the street from our church, like to twist this scripture to say just that. But the term firstborn means to convey, in the first century, the right of inheritance. The firstborn of our creation or overcreation, we will see, is in fact the Creator Himself. It is the only sovereign and supreme Christ who can say this, All authority has been given unto me in heaven and in earth, because this is the full right of God's firstborn, His only begotten Son. As we will see in the very next verse, it is the second person of the Trinity that spoke the universe into existence out of nothing. Recorded in Genesis 1, stated again in John chapter 1, and again here in Colossians chapter 1. In other words, folks, be reminded of this all the time. When you start reading your Bible from the beginning and you turn to Genesis and you read a phrase repeated for six days of creation, and the Lord said, let there be light, and there was light, you need to know who was speaking. According to John, Colossians, and all the rest of the scriptures, it was indeed the second person of the Trinity, the Word who is Jesus Christ himself. But here is the essential personal application. It's why I have burdened you with such heavy thinking this morning. I am teaching you doctrine, but not just so you can know stuff. Here is that essential personal application for those who do embrace the doctrine of the full divinity of Christ. If verse 15 is not a true fact, then neither is verse 14. You better glance at that. If the deity of Christ proclaimed in verse 15 is not true, then according to verse 14, we are still in our sins. We have not been rescued, as it says in that previous verse from a domain of darkness. We have not received forgiveness of sins. The next time you think that doctrine perhaps is only for theologians in ivy-covered seminaries, I didn't say cemeteries, seminaries, remember these truths have very personal consequences. Eve would say to Adam at this point, reading verses 14 and 15, she'd say something to him like, how do you like those apples? For it is in a divine Christ that we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He who is the image of the invisible God. It must be so. Even the Pharisees had it at least partly right one day when they accused Christ of blasphemy because he said to a lame man that he had just healed that that man's sins were forgiven. You remember what they said to Jesus? Why, only God can forgive sins. Who does he think he is? And if he had answered, God, who forgives this man's sins. If Jesus is to be the Redeemer, 
the very ground of our forgiveness. He must be God, and indeed, He is. So in verse 15, we view the supremacy of Christ because He is God fully revealed in flesh. Now give me just a few more moments. In verse 16, the supremacy of Christ is further attested by his role of creator God. And we've already read this. I'll read this portion again. For by him, all things were created. All things have been created through him and for him. Now look at verse 16 between the opening and the closing phrases I just gave you. Those two phrases. Everything in heaven, other than the triune God, came into existence at some point in time. You know, some people have the idea that heaven's always been there. That there were always streets paved with gold or gates made of pearl. Not so. Everything in heaven was made except the triune God. Same with all the things of earth. He says whether they be visible microscopic or invisible. And if there are other spiritual realities, which the Gnostics were saying there were other powers, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, there is nothing that exists, Paul says, outside of God that does not owe its existence and its homage to God, to Him. He is the medium. All that is Created, he made, and did so ultimately, Paul says, for himself. Folks, these truths are the beginning of helping you and helping me get what's called a biblical world view. We cannot understand who we are, I said, and we cannot really get a handle on what's going on all around us apart from these fundamental truths. And Paul says, what are they? Well, among other things, just start here. All things must bow to their creator. Even things in a fallen world, a cursed world, things that are intended for evil, God will ultimately work for the good of his redeemed. And in the culmination of all things, put his enemies under his feet. Bill, you're not the only one that gets a frog in the throat. This is history, folks. The past, the present, and the future. It's why I had us sing yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus is the same. All may change, but Jesus never. That's the teaching of this passage. The supremacy of Christ and his dominion. It is a biblical worldview versus a humanistic, <clears throat> secular worldview. My voice is telling me to stop, not just the usual few of you. Nothing can alter this absolute and sovereign rule. It is what Paul means in verse 17. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. There's much more I have prepared to say here, and I'll save it for another time. But I think this is a good place to give you one more very personal, meaningful application of these deep and heavy doctrines. Do you see where Paul says, and by him all things hold together? Ever feel like the world's just falling apart? 
Have those words ever crossed your lips in deep grief or fear or concern? And you've confided perhaps only in one other person in your whole life, but you found yourself saying, I just can't go on. I'm falling apart. What could such a person in such a dread condition need if not the Supreme One who holds it all together? What thing is keeping you from fully trusting in Christ as Creator and as Lord, most importantly, as Savior? Listen, if you take verses 16 and 17 together, you have this phrase. You have it four times. All things, all things, all things, all things. And in every case, those all things are under the absolute control of the sovereign and supreme creator God fully revealed in the thorn, sword, and nail-scarred body of Christ Jesus, Lord and Savior of sinners. That's it. The one who has, you remember from our last study, qualified us before the face of His Father, rescued us from the domain of darkness, and has transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. It was the Father's good pleasure, we read today, that all that fullness and all things would dwell in Him. And through Him, He would reconcile us to Himself. So yes, my friends, it is a fallen world, but you and I who trust in Christ... We are in very good hands. Oh, as it says there in verse 18, may he come to have practical preeminence, first place in all things. Now, that vital text is not suggesting that we have a list of priorities. Do you like to make lists? I live by lists. I make new lists every week. They never get any shorter. I have all these things to do, all these priorities. It's not that we make a list like that and we make sure that Jesus is number one. It's not that at all. It is that for everything on the list, Christ Himself is to take priority. That is to say, He is first place in my marriage to my wife. He is in first place as I seek to be a father to my children. He is in first place when it comes to how I handle my finances. He is to have preeminence over my time, over my work, over my goals, over my dreams. He is even to have time over what I would call leisure. So go golf, but do it for the glory of God. For the Scripture says, for whether we eat or whether we drink, let us do all to the glory of God for From Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen.